The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Welcome to The Hearing with me, Kevin Poulter. In each episode, I chat with some of the most interesting characters in and around the legal profession. You'll hear about their lives, their passions, and their relationship with the law. In our first transatlantic episode of The Hearing, I talked to Dean Strang. Dean's name will be familiar if you're one of the millions of viewers who followed the trial of Stephen Avery in Netflix's hit docuseries Making a Murderer. The Wisconsin defense attorney was a consistent voice of reason in an apparent quagmire of corruption and injustice. During our chat, Dean shares his experience of dealing with the media with all the attention that the case brought. You'll also hear about his interest in historical cases, his concerns about the future of justice in America, and how he copes with his new life as an unlikely international sex symbol. The Hearing. So Dean, thank you very much for joining us and taking time, I think, on your Monday morning uh, before you've got got into the uh, working week. And it's great to speak to you. And really, many people will be aware of you because of your uh, moment in the spotlight, um, for better or worse, on uh, Netflix, uh, Making a Murderer. We'll touch on that later. But I want to know, first of all, um, a little bit more about you and your background and uh, how you came to be a a, a lawyer, an attorney uh, in the US, and particularly uh, working with defendants. Well, I came to be a lawyer at all because I abandoned late as an undergrad uh, what had been my dream of being a, an editorial cartoonist. Oh. And uh, w- once I decided that as much as I love cartooning, it probably wouldn't be a good 50-year career for me, hmm. I really didn't have a backup plan. And I was nearing the end of my junior year in college. My father had always thought that I would be a good lawyer. That's an idea I had dismissed for years, but it had been implanted in my head. And this was the very early 1980s, uh, a time when almost anyone who could breathe and write his or her name could get into law school in the United States. So it really was a path of least resistance uh, for me. Mm. I went to law school, turned out I loved it. And I had no thought of doing any sort of trial work, let alone criminal work, Mm. until shortly after law school when happenstance uh, caused me to fall in among a friendly band of public defenders here who became my my friends, um, my almost exclusive circle of friends in the first couple of years after law school and revealed to me what I was missing by concentrating exclusively on civil law at the time. Uh, I got interested in criminal law, uh, had a very brief and disastrous period as a federal prosecutor and decided that I liked criminal law, but did not like and was not good at prosecuting. And then uh, by sure luck, um, I had met and was offered a job by the leading two criminal defense lawyers in my hometown, which was Milwaukee, Wisconsin at the time. And that's now uh, almost exactly 30 years ago. Wow. Uh, well, th- th- that's kind of incredible. And, and it's interesting you mentioned the cartooning as well, because I'm, I'm sure you're familiar, but uh, a lot of our insight into the uh, 
criminal, but also the court system generally in the UK is is limited to cartoons. Uh, we don't have the uh, the TV cameras as you seem to do over there. Um, certainly, uh, that's the that's the impression we get uh, so frequently from some of your big trials. But are you still cartooning in the background, or is that is that now a long a distant memory? I I almost never draw anymore. Um... And I need, in some ways, I need to avoid it in the same way an alcoholic is wise to avoid a drink. <laughs> that doesn't mean to say you're not very good at it, though, um, as, as some alcoholics will also prove. So, as well as being a lawyer, uh, you you also taken up a role as a teacher um, and, and now author as well, I understand. Yes, those are our side hustles, as people would say today. <laughs> the... The writing, uh, actually, I started researching my first book back in about 1994, but it took 11 years to get serious about actually writing it. Uh, and then that, that came out in 2013. The second book will be out early next year. I had hoped for 2018, but it looks like it'll be winter, early spring 2019. Both of them are legal history. Both of them are set during the World War One era in this country, 1917-1918. Right. Teaching I've been doing at the law school level since 2002, on and off. I really enjoy teaching a great deal and find it rejuvenating. And how do your students feel about your status now as a celebrity lawyer? Almost it's, uh, is that is that you think increased your uh, class attendance, or is, have you not seen much change? Well, the students who knew me before, I think, are are mostly amused by the you know the attention I've gotten. <laughs> um, it doesn't shape what they think of me, obviously, since they knew before. I haven't done a lot of teaching since Making a Murderer came out, but I've done some. And it's hard to say whether it's increased attendance other than in one class, I know that it did. Mm, I I can imagine so. Um, And in terms of the books, you mentioned uh, about World War One, but I know you've got an interest in Clarence Darrow. Is that right? I do. I've had a long standing interest in Clarence Darrow. So for people in the UK uh, who might be listening, uh, they may not be so familiar with the name. I, I remember a few years ago seeing a, a play with, um, I think we can still say Kevin Spacey at least, uh, although we won't say too much more about him, a one-man play that he put on as Clarence Darrow, uh, which was fascinating and a, and a great insight into what's really one of the biggest lawyer names in, in US history, I think is fair to say. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I, I, it's something which, again, people might not be familiar with. Sure, absolutely. In the United States, I think it's fair to say that Clarence Darrow is the lawyer most famous for being a lawyer. Uh, And what I mean by that is, you know, we've had lots of lawyers who became famous as politicians, as presidents in the United States, as Supreme Court justices, as prosecutors, whatever. Clarence Darrow was, was famous simply for being a trial lawyer. He was born in 1857, died in 1938, and he really was in the most visible place in American culture between about 1894 and 1932. Um, fascinating man. You could think of him either as, um, as a saint who sinned quite a bit or as a sinner who had some saintly qualities. Hmm. He wrote, he was at the time a public intellectual, 
And for audiences in the UK, the play that you mentioned originally was played by Henry Fonda, both on the stage and in a filmed version in the United States, and then played very capably by um, Kevin Spacey in a version that was released only in the UK. But what that is, is a condensed version of Clarence Darrow's closing argument in a famous case in the United States called Leopold and Loeb, about which the movie Compulsion, uh, starring Orson Welles, also was made. And the words in that play, although condensed for theatric purposes, are Clarence Darrow's. Um, so it's a that plays a wonderful opportunity to get a sense of the rare command of language uh, that Darrow had at his best. Uh, they're giving a nearly eight-hour extemporaneous sentencing argument to the judge in Chicago about why his two young clients, uh, both of them, I think under 21 at that point, should not be executed for a brutal murder that they committed. Well, obviously, you've got your own interest there, and 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 that sounds like passion as well, and uh, and have, have done your research. But he was clearly a larger than life character as well. And it's interesting you mentioned how his, his arguments were taken and, and condensed, really, for entertainment, um, as they have been in the film, but but also in the play, and. With your involvement with making a murderer, I suppose there's some comparisons that we can easily draw there. Um, I'll try and avoid being too obvious. Uh, but, but what we see, in, and for people who aren't familiar with it, it's, uh, I think, a 10-part uh, Netflix documentary, uh, which, which follows uh, just such an incredible story, mainly focused on one man's challenges uh, with the US justice system. And uh, obviously, it's condensed into 10 hours, but you become quite a key figure in that. Um, but how did that come about? How did your involvement come about? Um, I don't want to give away too many spoilers for people who might not have seen it, but it's just sitting here in the UK, looking over there, we just can't, can't believe it. And through the course of the show, you really do become the the voice of reason, the voice of common sense, uh, and arguably even the voice of the person sat at home in disbelief. Um, how did that all come about? Well, it's not a very exciting story how it came about. <laughs> okay, well, we'll take the condensed version. <laughs> yeah, it, I'll, I'll condense it. It came about because I agreed to be Stephen Avery's lawyer. That happened three or four months after the filmmakers who made Making a Murderer had found him and found his case. So when I joined uh, as Stephen Avery's new retained defense lawyer, the filmmakers already had been at work for, I think, about three months, maybe even a little bit longer. Mm. Jerry Butin, my co-counsel in that case, joined a week or two after I did. So the question for me and for Jerry was whether and how to cooperate with that filming. We ultimately did cooperate after reaching an agreement with the filmmakers on what the parameters of our cooperation would be and um, also the parameters of their relationship going forward from that point with our client, Stephen Avery. Mm. And that that's how it happened. And then some years went by after that trial before we heard again from the filmmakers that the film had been sold. Right. Because presumably the filmmakers first got involved when, uh, just to summarize, that uh, Steve Avery had been in prison already for, I think, 18 years uh, for a 
crime that was proven that he hadn't committed. Um, and presumably that's why the filmmakers were initially interested, because he was bringing an action against uh, the, the county, the, the state. Um, I, I presume that's why they're already on board. Well, I can only tell you what I've read oh. uh, them say in, you know, in, in interviews um, and, you know, paraphrasing, you're right. Mm. He had been wrongfully convicted, served 18 years. And then after his release, because DNA not only exonerated him, but identified the, the true rapist in that earlier case, Wisconsin had a, a period of self-examination. Mm. Uh, the legislature, the governor put together a blue ribbon commission to look at possible reforms to criminal justice in Wisconsin to try to avert that kind of miscarriage of justice from happening again. Informally, that commission became known as the Avery Commission. And then within about three years after his release, mm. Stephen was uh, charged again with an even more serious crime, first degree intentional homicide. And that made news around the country because he was then and is now the only DNA exoneree who's gone on to be charged with a new and more serious crime like murder. And the filmmakers saw an article uh, about his experience. And I think what they really wondered was, would some of the reforms that were instituted in Wisconsin in his name turn out to help uh, his experience on his second journey through the criminal justice system. Hmm. It's unusual for me to see uh, two lawyers who don't necessarily know each other that well or haven't worked together before working together on a case. How does that, is that common practice and how does that come about? Oh, Jerry and I knew each other quite well and had worked on cases together before. We've never been in the same firm and we had always represented you know, co-defendants before, wife, husband, father, son, that kind of thing, or friends. Um, but we knew each other and had worked together. And mm. we thought the collaboration would work pretty well here representing the same person just because my weaknesses tend to be his strengths and vice versa. Mm. I think it works really well. And and what's so clear throughout is your, your real drive and honest belief in Stephen's um, innocence, it, it it really showed through. Well, I, it would have been hard to hide. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Well, say with, I I don't know how you cope. All those cameras in a press conference every day, and uh, and, and cameras outside, witnesses, uh, houses, even before a trial even starts. I just, I, I find it, it's so unbelievable. It's the whole thing is just. It's. It's it's really a bit obscene. Yeah, I mean, in the in the true meaning of that word, you do come across all the way through. Both you and Jerry come across as this just the voice of sense and reason, and I, I think there's, I think it's true everywhere. People seem to have a natural fascination with crime and justice, um, with, with the films, uh, dramas, documentaries. Uh, what, what, I suppose you've, you've, you've been around a little bit while uh, working with criminal trials, but what is that fascination? What is that interest? Because it's, I think it's slightly different in the US to how it is here on how it's presented in the media um, and, and certainly the access, as I've, I've said already. But it seems to be true across the world. It, it does seem to be true across the world, and it, it it's a little bit more accessible or 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 uh, 
presents the appearance of greater accessibility in the United States as one of the few countries that does allow cameras into a courtroom. And I, I you know, I'm not a sociologist. Uh, I can't explain exactly what the appeal is of true crime. I think if I were to guess, people feel a sort of frisson from, you know, proximity to somebody who's charged with an awful crime. There are at times mystery elements to some criminal cases. They become whodunits. If it's not clear uh, that, that the person charged actually is guilty or guilty of exactly um, the crime with which he's charged, lawyers can be interesting. There's the, at least the promise, often a false promise, but there's the promise of theatrical performance in a sense with any trial and some dramatic tension in what the outcome will be. Um, so th th those are all guesses about why people find it interesting. Yeah, I think there's some truth in that. And I think one of the reasons that uh, has been presented before in the UK as to why uh, particularly criminal trials aren't, aren't presented with, by video or, or have cameras in court is because they're concerned about the theatrics that go along with it. Um, whether people pick these up from, uh, I'm showing my age now, Ali McBeal uh, and other things like that. I'm not suggesting we have fireworks in the courtroom, but presumably that is some, that's a different skill that you have come to, to, to know, either naturally or through uh, sort of your own learning, uh, to, to know how to present a case, not only for a judge or for a jury, um, knowing that there is a few people sat behind you. And not only that, just around the corner, there's a press room uh, or, or a press conference to be uh, met with as well. Well, let's be very clear that uh, almost all parts of all trials are really bad theater, <laughs> if that's what you're looking for. They are poorly paced. They're unscripted and often clumsy. There are blind alleys that people pursue. Trials are mostly drudgery in many respects. Um, now, they have moments of genuine human passion. Uh, they have moments, if you're lucky, of satisfying oratory or use of language. They have poignant moments. Many, many trials have poignant moments, mostly coming from citizen witnesses, not from the paid professional participants, the judge, the prosecutor, the defense lawyer, or the police officers. Yeah. Well, uh, having been in enough tribunals myself, uh, I, I know that all too well. Um, although we'd never say that about ourselves, of course. What was interesting for me, um, maybe as a lawyer, but I don't think necessarily, was, was looking at the sort of strange, sometimes uncomfortable relationship between uh, the police, uh, the sort of law enforcement, uh, the, the justice system, even local politics, as well as the media, and and how all that comes about. Because you say that 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 might seem sometimes like drudgery, um, but actually it's fascinating to see uh, some personal egos, personal motivations being played out uh, before us. Now, I, I'm sure that Steve Avery's case, and I hope it is, is is relatively unique one, but. In your in your experience, how how do you feel about dealing with elected officials, local police, with their own uh, sort of passions or concerns or motivations? Is that something which is endemic in the American justice system that there's always an opportunity for ego to overcome really a true sense of justice? Well, there's very little I can say generally uh, or across the board in response to your question. But one of the things I could say would be to start with what you just said. 
which is we do encounter ego. Mm -hmm. Um, Our own egos get in the way of our work frequently. The egos of prosecutors, judges, uh, police officers often interfere in a sense with uh, truth seeking. But, you know, beyond that, it's it's very situational mm. because every every actor in every case is is human yeah. and therefore different and different day to day. Now I think often in smaller jurisdictions, rural counties, the participants may know each other mm. um, better and may have known each other for years. They may have been schoolmates at one time, so you you get you know, sort of small town grudges and and jealousies and 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 just uh, history um, playing in uh, in the courtroom and and um, that that can have a, a particular effect. And you're you're also right that Stephen Avery's case, if not unique, was at least very unusual in so far as. He had spent such a long time in prison, wrongly convicted, and was in the middle of uh, a lawsuit um, that might well have produced enormous damages, you know, uh, meaning an an enormous money judgment in his favor against Hmm. local law enforcement agencies. Um, That was the context in which this new investigation arose. Um, So... this case had really the high potential for stray human motivations complicating the the process of finding the truth or at least looking for the truth. Mm, well, you say the, the, there was a commission set up, albeit with his name, uh, which was, I think, ultimately just it just fizzled out. Um, is there anything that's coming around in the US to replace that in some sort of review system because um, and it went through the, a lot of the appeal courts as well at the time and, and just got kicked back at, at each stage uh, is this something which is changing um, over there very piecemeal systemic change um, is coming in a very piecemeal fashion in the United States in, in part because of our federalist structure you know every, every state is, is sovereign uh, within states we elect sheriffs, we elect district attorneys county by county. So change is, you know, as I've said now three times, very piecemeal. And what I mean concretely by that is, you know, this or that county district attorney around the country have set up uh, conviction integrity units, uh, units within their offices designed to examine past convictions for uh, problems or for suggestions that... um, and injustice may have been done. But not every district attorney and nowhere near a majority of district attorneys is doing that yet. Um, Some states are experimenting with uh, tightening up, for example, the circumstances under which the police can interview a child in custody. Some of those legislative changes at the state level I think, have been motivated by the experience of uh, Stephen Avery's nephew, Brendan Dassey, that uh, is among the most compelling uh, footage that Making a Murderer presents. But there again, you know, what's happening in California or Illinois won't necessarily be replicated in Missouri or Arkansas or 
Florida or Maine or anywhere else. So it's a slow and, and uncertain process. Um, but I will say this, if you take the long view, mm-hmm. the emergence of DNA analysis as a means of identifying the guilty and also clearing the innocent since the early 1990s has led not just to, at this point, thousands of exonerations of people, many of whom had spent years or even decades in prison for crimes they didn't commit, but also has led to a public acceptance of the fact that our criminal justice system has a real error rate. Innocent people do get convicted in spite of what Americans think are many safeguards to prevent that. Uh, Guilty people get acquitted. And I think there's an acceptance of this in the last uh, two decades or more, largely driven by, as I say, the advent of DNA analysis. Yeah. And with that acceptance, there's a discomfort about it and uh, a broad desire to look at whether we can't strengthen the system in ways that uh, make it more reliable in uh, protecting the innocent and convicting the guilty. Um, And that impetus has reached legislators (laughs) in some states uh, unevenly, but uh, it has reached them. And at the same time, I think there's growing recognition that uh, mass incarceration is not solving this country's problems, it's exacerbating them. Yeah. And sometimes it comes down to, as well as having DNA evidence, it comes down to maybe just human error or human instinct. Um, Does the jury system still work as well as it should? Is it time to to look at that again? Because, again, using the example that you were working on, and I'm, I'm sure others, that people just make bad decisions sometimes, even if there are 12 of them making it. Well, I think what it's pastime to look at is whether judges and lawyers are fulfilling our duties in impaneling impartial juries and um, impressing upon juries Hmm. the rules by which this system has to operate if it's going to operate safely and reliably at all. Yeah. Uh, You know, in a day of social media and the ability to get information out of court about a matter that has to be decided in court, the uh, inaccuracy, outright falsity of much of that information. Judges, especially, and lawyers secondarily, have to do a much better job about screening who serves on a jury Mm. and impressing on that jury in more than a perfunctory way, the burden of proof, the presumption of innocence, the basic rules by which this system has to operate, again, if it's if it's to operate reliably and safely. Mm. I think in the main, um, American judges uh, have not met that challenge and tend to, if anything, try to uh, shorten the process of selecting a jury and... Um, reduce it to to very perfunctory effort. Uh, lawyers are to blame for that as well. I would not place the blame on citizens who, by and large, come to juries motivated to do justice. 
Hmm. Good. Um, and what about you now? So you, you now have your firm. Uh, I think that did that come about since uh, since the show was originally recorded? No, no, no. I've had my firm since before. Oh gosh. So uh, so tell us about the work. Well, not too much detail. We're conscious of client confidentiality. Um, but what's the work you're doing now? What's what's on the horizon? It's a very small firm, three lawyers and an assistant. I continue to uh, practice almost exclusively in criminal defense. And uh, my partner spends about half his time on criminal defense and half on personal injury cases on the plaintiff's side. Uh, His wife is our third lawyer and, and her practice is devoted entirely to personal injury. Do you have any aspirations to, to, to be a judge? Because I, everyone, think, I think, would agree that you'd make a fantastic one. Well, I did, but I'm but I'm too old for it in this country at this point, believe it or not. Gosh. That's... Um, so I, I gave those aspirations up about seven years ago. Yeah, it's such a different system. Um, well, come over here. We'll have you. <laughs> <laughs> believe me, coming over there looks more attractive with every tweet <laughs> Uh, Donald Trump sends. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah. Well, look, we've got our own problems. Don't, don't mind us. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> Every, everywhere does, but it's a grass is greener phenomenon. And obviously you've had a huge amount of, of interest. Um, I think you might be the first international sex symbol that we've had on the podcast so far. Um, uh, I, I've read the reports. And uh, how, how have you handled that personally? Because it's had a huge amount of uh, attention. And uh, you, you seem like an incredibly charming, modest person. And I feel like we get to know you uh, personally as we see the show as well, but as, as many people will. But is that something which is just so, well, you certainly couldn't plan for it. No, you know, I, I couldn't have planned for the, any of the attention. I don't, I don't think anybody seriously has ever thought I'm a, a sex symbol or anything close to that. Um, <laughs> as for modesty, um, I can tell you only that uh, my dad used to remind me with some regularity that, you know, Dean, you have a lot to be modest about. <laughs> I think that's probably a good motto for us all. Um, uh, Dean, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And uh, of course, we wish you all the very best, uh, not only for you, but also for, for, the, for the work that you're doing and, um, and and with the books as well, which I'm sure will be available on Amazon and in all good bookshops uh, in due course. Tell me, tell me what we should be looking out for next year. Well, the name of that book is uh, Wobbly. America's Biggest Mass Trial, The Rise of the Justice Department, and the Fall of the IWW. And it, uh, it does concern the biggest mass trial U.S. civilian courts ever have attempted, which was an effort by the federal Department of Justice to destroy um, a really fascinating union, uh, the industrial workers of the world. Mm. And I want to thank you for having me and, and uh, wish you good luck in finding guests with substantially more sex appeal than I have. <laughs> I think it might be a challenge, Dean, but thank you very much. I look forward to speaking soon. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.